Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. If you have not listened to the last episode of Power Hour, go listen to it right now. I won't go so far as to say that you can't understand today's Power Hour without the last one, but today, today's Power Hour is part two of a two-part series involving Reasoning Mind, which is, to me, a very fascinating initiative that may have a good shot at truly improving the dreadful math education in the United States. Uh, So go to iTunes, go wherever, uh, but... Make sure, that, make sure that you listen to part one. So today is part two. As promised, we're going to talk about the challenges faced by reasoning mind and what we can learn from them. So nothing else to say. Let's get to it on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. This week, we're doing segment two of our interview with Alex Hachatrian of Reasoning Mind. Um, if you haven't listened to segment one yet, I highly, highly recommend it, both because it's really interesting content and because we're going to assume just about all of that content as part of today's discussion. We talked about uh, Reasoning Mind, which is a, a unique uh, math program that uses a unique uh, curriculum and unique artificial intelligence uh, plus a unique implementation systems implementation system uh, to deliver a kind of math education that I think has more potential than any other that I've seen to scale to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of students. And that's something we're very interested in on this program since energy is the ability to produce energy is determined by having lots and lots of people who are scientifically and technically proficient, and that means mathematically proficient. Uh, so very exciting stuff. Uh, so today we're going to talk to Alex once again, and we have him here. Alex, welcome back to Power Hour. Uh, good to be here. Thanks, Alex. All right. So what I just said is pretty much all I'm going to recap from last time, and I'm going to I'm going to begin with the question that I ended uh, in the very end of last program with, uh, which is, if this program is so great, why aren't millions of kids using it? Uh, good question. And uh, the answer is going to be very, very long, so we could talk uh, for, for, for long about that. Um, but it's a very legitimate question, certainly. Uh, why not everyone is uh, kind of lining up to get reasoning mind well, into their me, schools? Let me, let me ask this. Is there, before we go into, the, because I imagine there are, there are different kinds of obstacles. So one can be quality of the program. It's not developed enough yet. Others can be uh, the bureaucracy or obstacles of, uh, let's say, the government education system. Um, Others can be difficulties in people just making people adopting change in general. Uh, others can be preconceived notions people have about computers. So I'm, I'm curious, what are the the categories of obstacle you've you've faced? And then I think that'll make it easier to separate them out. Mm-hmm. I would segment all the obstacles. I would rather call them challenges into two uh, broad categories internal to reasoning mind and external. Uh, By internal, what I mean is things that are more or less under our control, uh, things that we at reasoning mind can, uh, can with uh, with due effort, um, bring to the point when uh, we can resolve them. Uh, External challenges are a little less under our control. Uh, That's something much broader in scope, uh, something that we could hopefully affect introducing change in how mathematics education is taught, but something that will require a whole lot more effort on our side uh, to, uh, to change and to, to change to the point when uh, the entire society will be more receptive to 
what Reasoning Mind is offering. So, so I'm most sound- interested in external uh, because I think especially, I'm interested in internal too, uh, but we got a little bit of that last time. Plus, I think in listening to you last time, we got a sense that, that your organization is, is very committed to evolution and, and to self-correction. And so I'm not, in the scheme of things, I'm not too worried about that. Uh, what, I'm definitely worried. I've seen with many schools that I know and just the educational system in general, external things. I'm, I'm curious what the different external factors are. And I, I imagine there might be some, some major subdivisions of those. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about external first. Uh, and if we at any point in time want to come back to internal, there'll be of some interest, uh, I believe, to the audience as well. But uh, uh, let's start with external ones. Uh, so they all stem, in my view, from the same root. Uh, so the major root cause uh, for, for the issues that we face, and we're not alone in facing those challenges, there are other good high-quality mathematics education programs uh, that probably are running into similar things, is what I would uh, characterize as a mismatch between how we as society see the critical ingredients or attributes of success in mathematics education and what the history of high quality mathematics education teaches us. Uh, so there's a whole lot of history, as you would imagine, how mathematics is taught. This, we're not the first one doing this. Uh, that, that has been done in many countries, pretty much in every country, uh, and over many, many generations of, of students and teachers. So if we look at uh, how high-quality mathematics education is delivered uh, in, in other countries, in other cultures, uh, and we compare this uh, systemically with our views as a society uh, on, on what's important, what's not important, what are these important attributes of quality mathematics education, uh, we'll see significant differences. Uh, and I think they're cultural in nature, in a sense that, well, that's, this is the system of beliefs and views that we uh, that we came up with uh, in the United States uh, for various reasons, uh, and and this system keeps evolving. Um, and, but I think that unless we make some adjustments uh, to this uh, system of beliefs, it'll be very, very difficult for programs like Reasoning Mind to get to scale. Does this make sense overall at a kind of high level, Alex? Yeah, and that possibility makes sense. I mean, I'm curious what the particular beliefs are. Yeah. Well, let me start with uh, with uh, supposedly a very simple kind of question. What is the purpose of education in general and mathematics education specifically? Right. It's it's extremely broad question. I'm sure that all of your viewers probably answered this question at a certain point in time. But I want to go back to to an interesting, uh, at least in my view, uh, interesting thing that I noticed when I was watching uh, uh, a film that came out a couple of years ago. Have you ever watched the film by the name Waiting for Superman? Uh, I've watched I've watched part of it, which gives an impression of my view of the film. Uh, but yeah. yes. <laughs> it's, it's a full feature film that uh, that is pretty high quality, talks about very, uh, very important issues in education. Uh, and uh, there's some very interesting coverage and interesting views expressed in this in this film. But one thing, uh, one particular episode uh, struck me quite uh, quite significantly, and I wanted to share this episode with you uh, and see what you think. So, when talking about kind of the purpose of education and how difficult or easy uh, education is, uh, uh, this this film uh, produced a, a little uh, cartoon showing an animation, I would say, showing something like an open brain surgery performed on students to illustrate the idea that uh, heads are like vessels to fill with knowledge. Uh, and that was accompanied by a narration asking what can be so difficult about that. You just open up kind of, the brains and you pour knowledge into these brains and after that you kind of shut them back in. Uh, seems like a very, very simple exercise. Well, uh, it's not, right, as, as I hope you would agree with me. There's a whole lot more to education than just kind of a simple even brain surgery, which we probably will not call simple. And I don't think that many people would view education in this light, but the prevalent view 
on mathematics education comes quite close to this, surprisingly. Uh, so for the most part, uh, if you ask an average person uh, uh, in our country, uh, what, is, what is mathematics education about, you'll hear back uh, that it is about uh, a list of uh, skills and procedures that needs to be transferred to a student. So a student needs to be taught particular things, to do particular operations, to remember particular facts. Uh, and, and for the most part, um, the average person will say that it's really not important in which sequence and order uh, you're going to teach those skills and procedures. Uh, uh, with math, as you would imagine, uh, that would be quite difficult to comprehend uh, because the knowledge of mathematics uh, is quite sequential and uh, deliberate in, in its sequential manner. Uh, so that probably will make sense to everyone. Yet, in many of our schools, uh, we quite often choose quite arbitrary uh, sequencing of topics that are taught uh, in, in math class and are not paying as careful attention to how the knowledge builds upon itself, uh, which is so critical for mathematics. So what would be a, a quick example of just a, a completely wrong sequence that is taught? I'll, I'll give you a completely bizarre example that really blew me away, but to illustrate the point. Uh, so, would you imagine that uh, uh, in teaching arithmetic operations, uh, uh, you first need to teach addition, and after that subtraction, and after that multiplication, after that division? Does this make sense? Sure. To you, right? Because of the complexity, first of all, of those operations. But the second thing is that, uh, well, uh, subtraction is an inverse operation to addition. Right, so you, you 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 learn those two things in parallel, but it's a much simpler adding is a much simpler concept than subtracting. So multiplication is repeated addition. So that's how usually a multiplication is explained and taught to students. While division is an inverse uh, operation to multiplication, and for that reason, it is much more difficult to to understand for for students of of the young age. So I've heard of a curriculum at some point in time. Yeah, and by the way, let me take it one step back. Also, let's look at number systems. So whole numbers uh, is, is the simplest thing possible, right? So, uh, and after that, there are decimals, there are fractions. Uh, uh, so decimals are probably somewhat more complex than whole numbers. But if you learn them mechanically, it's just a decimal point that makes a difference. But other than that, you pretty much operate with decimals like with whole numbers. Well, fractions are much, much more trickier, so you have to do at least common denominator, uh, and so they, they, they look like very, very different animals. So, and, uh, and for that reason, those number systems are taught in a consistent, coherent mathematics course in a particular progression. Usually, students in low grades start with whole numbers, um, uh, natural numbers. Actually, they even do not learn negative numbers because that comes later on. This is even more difficult concept to learn. But uh, from whole numbers, they progress to decimals, and after that, they progress to fractions. Uh, quite often, fractions are taught uh, before decimals uh, because uh, decimal is, is a special case of a fraction, right? With a denominator of count, uh, 10, 100, and, and powers of 10. Uh, so, but would you imagine a curriculum that would teach uh, uh, not in this particular sequence mathematics, but by operation. First, this curriculum will teach addition of whole numbers, addition of decimals, and addition of fractions. And after that, that curriculum will teach <laughs> subtraction of whole numbers, uh, subtraction of decimals, subtraction of fractions, and on to multiplication and division. This is a pretty bizarre example. I could hear you laughing, but uh, I really heard about the curriculum that, that, that does it in that uh, very way. Right? So that hopefully will illustrate the point and, and answer your question. Okay, so now we've we, we've got the broader issue still of there's there's this you know, in, in different cultures they have these these different mindsets or views in regard to math education. Ours at least doesn't seem to be too uh, nearly concerned enough uh, about the role of, of sequence so how does this then become an obstacle? Because you might say, hey, look, doesn't it, can't you see it doesn't make any sense to do 
um, you know, fra addition of fractions when fractions involves division. Like, don't you get that? And then people say, yeah, I get that. Did it, why can't we just switch it? I mean, how, how, why is there an obstacle? Why isn't it just, oh, you, they just, you know, the, the light bulb goes off for them once you show them the way. Yeah, let me go back first to the whole idea that mathematics teaching is about uh, transferring over to a student a particular set of skills and procedures. Oh, right. You know, a very, very algorithmic uh, view or procedural view of mathematics. Uh, so, and uh, if you ask again an average person, uh, that person will say, if a student by the end of a grade can come add, subtract, and multiply uh, within what's required at that grade level, that means that the student can learn mathematics uh, at, at the expected grade level. Well, actually, the whole purpose of teaching mathematics, uh, as it's seen by mathematicians uh, and educators that, that take a view that I subscribe to, uh, is much more of a developmental nature rather than imposing or transferring over to student-defined uh, set of procedures. Uh, as as uh, one of the uh, uh, very well-known mathematicians of our times, late uh, Dr. Paul Selle from uh, University of Chicago said, uh, and he was uh, uh, an advisor to Reasoning Mind at the very early stage of our company, and stayed as an advisor until he, he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, he gave a very, very powerful formula in one of the interviews that we've done with him. Uh, asked about kind of the purpose of mathematics education, uh, Paul said, if you want to be able to think, then mathematics is the way to do it. Just consider this for a second. Uh, the emphasis here is not really on any particular set of skills, not on any particular facts of mathematics. The emphasis is on the ways of thinking that learning mathematics helps students develop. And those ways of thinking uh, will serve those students quite well in almost anything they're going to do in their lives. Uh, so mathematical ways of thinking, logical reasoning, uh, 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 ability to classify objects, ability to follow particular argument, uh, is extremely useful in almost any intellectual work uh, that we're engaging in. So that's what the power of mathematics is. It's really not about learning how to solve quadratic e equations. It's a discipline of a mind, if you will, uh, uh, developing which is so important. Uh, I go back to my memories of my days in, in, in high school when I learned quadratic equations. Honestly, I never had to come back and use quadratic equations in my future life as an applied mathematician. Uh, uh, but I know for sure that by solving significant number of quadratic equations and looking at what's coming out of it and understanding how the procedure works and understanding the graph for, for a parable, uh, I developed certain skills that disciplined my mind uh, to a significant extent. And I'm using those skills, not quadratic equations per se, uh, in, in my work, uh, in daily work with, with a lot of things that I'm doing. So I think that's the, that's the critical juncture. That's where if you really see mathematics as a tool to develop your thinking abilities and uh, the abilities of, uh, of students' intellects, you take one route. Uh, if you see mathematics as just a defined set of procedures that needs to be imposed on students, that's a very different worldview of what mathematics education is about. But presumably you can have, so you have one as, one as the ultimate goal, but but presumably the students who go through your system will be good at, will have facility at those mathematical uh, operations, which are of course, you know, many of which, particularly the ones they're learning at the ages you're dealing with, are, are very important and come up constantly. Of course, they, they come hand in hand. There's no question that, well, students should learn those procedures. Uh, but learning those procedures uh, should not be considered the goal in themselves. That's what I'm saying. So this is something that, that's called procedural fluency, and students need to be able to add, subtract, multiply, and do it without calculators. And by the way, one of the reasons why it's helpful to do it without calculators, because that also develops your intellectual abilities. Uh, as we discussed last time, uh, uh, doing mental math is something that you enjoy, but it serves also another purpose. Uh, it it kind of, uh, keeps our brain uh, kind of uh, trained. It's like... Uh, 
kind of training your muscles. You exercise your muscles, the same thing you need to exercise your brain. So mathematics is pretty good at that. So what I'm saying is that uh, if we just limit the purpose of teaching and learning mathematics to memorizing those procedures and figuring out how to apply them uh, almost mechanically without understanding of those procedures in various circumstances, uh, that will not take us far enough. I think we'll be much better served if we learn the underlying principles that are behind those procedures, we'll learn the procedures themselves, but we'll learn the mathematical ways of thinking that inform those procedures. So then to, to relate this to the issue of obstacles, I, I, to just give a hypothetical that I don't think is true, I could imagine if, let's say, reasoning mind was much better fulfilling this ultimate purpose of mathematics, but led to students who were 25% less, less proficient in these mathematical procedures that were tested, I could see how the school districts would say, well, look, our standard is these procedures, you guys are slower at it, therefore we're not interested. But my understanding is a lot of these school districts are horrific at these procedures and reasoning mind is way better. So I, I can see how school districts would be less enthusiastic because they don't get the ultimate purpose, but I guess I don't see why they wouldn't be at least somewhat enthusiastic. Well, and many school districts actually are enthusiastic. So I wouldn't say that that's not the case. But then uh, uh, we, we, we start facing uh, certain, certain notions of uh, how to measure uh, whether students are learning mathematics or not. What are the established rules and procedures in a particular school district? And uh, so here's one of the examples. We talked about the sequence, right, and how uh, particular topics are taught in mathematics. We come to, to a school district and uh, in our country, uh, almost every school district uh, have certain ownership in how to teach mathematics uh, and, and they have their own scope and sequence and uh, quite often they, they develop their own curricula as well. Uh, so uh, we come with our scope and sequence and we say that, well, in our view, in our curriculum, it's really important uh, that the topics are taught in that particular sequence. And yes, there's no single sequence. Uh, there's quite a bit of variability there. There are good mathematics curricula that will teach it differently. Uh, but once you line up topics in a particular sequence, they become really connected with each other. And when you teach the following objectives or following topics, you rely on how you presented the previous topics. You go back and you do scaffolding. You, uh, you review knowledge and you solidify knowledge long before. So it's really not a, a set of just isolated modules that you can come uh, toss in any particular order and after that serve to students. There's a certain systemic component to a good mathematics teaching. And when we come to district, we tell them, so here's the whole thing. What we really, really recommend you do is just take reasoning mind curriculum and, and install it in your classrooms. And yes, you'll have to go in that prescribed uh, uh, order of, of sequencing. And yes, the artificial intelligence will adapt to the level of every student. And if a student uh, needs to review particular material, the system will take it back. But overall, there is a preferred or default uh, uh, sequence of topics that, uh, that every student is expected uh, to go through. What quite often we might hear back is that, well, that's not the particular sequence that we use in our district. Uh, we use a different district, a different sequence. Uh, and, and also tied to this sequence, we have the set of assessments that we in this district developed that we call benchmarks. Uh, and we give them students every six weeks uh, to make sure that students are on the right learning trajectory and actually that they do learn materials. Sounds reasonable, right? So I think that schools need to make sure that students are learning and they quite often want to verify that the students indeed are learning. Uh, but uh, the schools are telling us that, well, if we introduce your sequence in some of our schools, and of course we don't want to put uh, uh, your, your system uh, in all of our schools day one because we don't know if it's going to work or not, we want first to pilot it, right? We want to put it in a couple of schools and see how that does. But if we do that, and once we do that, uh, and your system will be teaching a different sequence, we'll not be able to use our benchmarks. Uh, or we can use our benchmarks, uh, but we'll hold you accountable to making sure that your students learn by particular date what we expect the entire district to learn. 
would you imagine that that might present a difficulty for us? Yes. Right. So that's that's a very simple example of uh, presumably a simple thing that shouldn't be a problem, but which becomes a problem uh, when when you come to a district. And that makes sense what the district is telling us. Okay, there's there's good logic behind it because they used to do things this way. They they hold their schools accountable to students' learning, and these are the instruments that they're using to to verify that their that their schools are doing a good job teaching their students. Are these school districts? I don't know if this is even how they think, but my my thought is, are they satisfied with the results they're currently getting? Uh, well, they always strive for better, but um, it's it's hard to define what satisfied is. Overall, probably not. I would say that everyone wants to do better. Uh, but again, if you compare your own school district with neighboring school districts uh, of about the same demographics, and if your school district uh, is doing more or less in the ballpark, uh, so that doesn't seem to be a major problem, right? So we we are we're in the ballpark. Well, I mean, it, I mean, even within conventional standards, you run up against stuff, particularly as you get to high school and college level. I mean, even even the kids who get five hundred or whatever whatever the current numbers are on the math SAT, and you know they have a people just having a or just companies observing people are not mathematically proficient. I mean, I, I hang around a fairly highbrow crowd in general, and most people are incredibly uncomfortable uh, right. with math. Uh, right. So it, it, it just, it seems obvious, that, and, and there's all this rhetoric in the system about STEM, and we want people to know math, so it, it just seems, it seems like an institutional incentive problem if if there's this general problem of math education and the the school district pretty much just has to hover around the status quo uh, and so as long as the you know you could just be in the ghetto and have you know five equally bad ghetto schools where no one's learning math would that be okay as long as as long as no one is learning it the same amount right and and I'm not in a position really to kind of look at it from kind of the policy perspective uh, but I'll offer a couple of things. Uh, first of all, what seems to me to be a problem is that uh, our mathematics education is quite compartmentalized. Uh, that means that the accountability is focused on each and every particular grade, grade level, right? And every teacher and every principal is held accountable for the performance of, of their students over, uh, over a school year. Right from the beginning to the end, and uh, kind of everyone is measuring growth, passing rates, and stuff like that. Uh, so next next school year, that particular teacher are going to get a different cohort of students that I'll have to work with. Uh, so there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, they have absolutely no control over what kind of a students they're going to get and what kind of a level of preparedness uh, in mathematics those students will have. And second of all. So uh, why would they care, given the current accountability system, whether their students, how their students are going to do two, three, four uh, grade levels count, uh, down the road? Their accountability is for how students are going to do at the end of this particular school year, right? That's, that's what they're held accountable to. And of course, they want their students to, to learn mathematics for, for a lifetime and be successful in not only elementary school, but in middle school, in high school, and in college. So that's, everyone has wonderful intentions, and no one questions that. But in reality, these particular teachers and principals are accountable uh, exclusively for how their students are going to do at the end of this year. So compare this with a little different system, where a teacher of mathematics gets a cohort of students, let's say right at the exit from the elementary school, grade 5, and will be responsible for those students through middle school and high school. And I'm not making things up. Actually, I went to a school uh, where that was a norm. Uh, not only in school, but in the country. And I think I mentioned this, that I, uh, I immigrated to the States uh, from, from the former Soviet Union. So in every school in the former Soviet Union and in many other countries as well, so that was not the only one, we're getting a math teacher at grade five, and that teacher saw us to graduation. Uh, 
So what, what that creates, it creates a completely different accountability for the teacher to society uh, and to students and to parents and to administration. Because that particular teacher is vitally interested in making sure that all of their students would be prepared uh, to comprehend and be successful with the material that that same teacher is going to teach those students next school year. Can you see how that dynamics changes dramatically uh, with this relatively simple change? Yeah, I've, I've never experienced anything like that. So it's, I'm just thinking about what that would have. I mean, the closest is that in high school, I went to a high school with uh, a fairly legendary math science, computer science magnet program. And the the teachers seemed to work well together, but also the, the, the structure of it was very, very deliberately focused on four years. And they were very focused on, this is why I want you to learn this first, and this is why I want you to learn second. But I never had a math teacher, certainly not in seventh grade or something, or sixth grade, and then who was my math teacher? I mean, it, would, it, it sounds, it just seems like a completely different project that I can, I can only imagine what it would be like. Yeah, but it's not only accountability that's at play here, but this particular teacher will know what these students need to learn, let's say at grade three, uh, sorry, not grade three, because we're talking grade five and up, let's say grade five, what do they really need to learn to be successful in grade six? Uh, and we'll be making sure to plant those seeds and spend time teaching those particular concepts so that when these students will uh, will appear at the same teacher's sixth grade, the teacher will build upon those uh, foundations that have been laid in the previous grade level. And it also gives a teacher a, a much wider perspective of mathematics as a subject, right? So it connects things. It, it, it allows to, uh, to visualize and uh, bring into the instructional work the idea of strands of mathematical reasoning, right? Well, geometrical reasoning, algebraic reasoning, count uh, number sense, and all, all of those things, uh, they become much better connected in teacher's mind and transferred over to students in a much more consistent way. I'm still, I'm still trying to imagine what, what that would be like. So what, what, how are they... In, in your education or and or in the ideal education, how how often are people tested throughout this process? Because you're going fifth to twelfth grade, you know, you're had, you know you're you're going through what eight different grades. Uh, how how are you tested along the way with this long project the teacher has of developing you? Well, testing is pretty often. First of all, there are quizzes and exams, right? As uh, as in any good uh, course teaching. Uh, so, and there's final exam at the end of uh, each grade level, uh, which certainly is extremely important and affects students' grade. Uh, so, uh, there there were no in my time there were no what we call standardized tests that all students in the country were getting, but there were tests that were given for. Uh, for the entire region, let's put it this way, right? Uh, which is quite significant, including like like a, like a huge school district or a number of school districts, like let's say in Dallas or in Houston, um, and uh, and those were important as well. So I, I think teachers were getting and students were getting quite a bit of feedback on on how they've been doing uh, uh, with with testing. So testing testing was not interfering with instruction at all, but. A good thing about that testing, from what I remember, was that it was quite well aligned with the curriculum, with what we've been taught. There's another uh, kind of often, uh, oftenly referred to as a misconception among uh, people that, that hold uh, views that are close to me, um, to my views, uh, that, that says that uh, uh, pretty much regardless of which curriculum you use in teaching student mathematics, uh, they should be able to do well on on any assessment that assesses students' knowledge uh, of, of at this particular grade level. And that sounds extremely fine and reasonable in theory, uh, but if you look practically at data, uh, you'll see that for stronger students, that more or less is the case. That means that regardless of which particular type or method of teaching of mathematical concepts and operations you use with students, 
uh, if they learn at a sufficiently deep level, then you could measure effects of their knowledge, uh, uh, which will be consistent on the whole suite of different tests. But if you are talking about a relatively weak student that cannot transfer their knowledge to learn in a particular context uh, much further from the context in which the learning occurred, then you see a very different picture. Then the student might be able to solve, put another way, that student might be able to solve problems that will be somewhat similar or close uh, in proximity in their context, in their composition, uh, to the problems that the students was taught with, but will have much more difficulty in solving problems that will be kind of dramatically different in how they're made up from those that the students have uh, seen in their coursework. Uh, and that's one of the problems also that, that we in our country are faced with. How to properly assess student knowledge. What If students are all taught by different curriculum, in one school district uses one curriculum, another is using a different curriculum, what will be the objective measure of comparison between how well those students uh, are using, uh, are learning? And if for that objective measure, we're going to employ high-stakes test, which is the standard thing that we do in our country, all of a sudden, this high-stakes test becomes a curriculum. You see where I'm heading with that? Yeah, so, I think that's a really important statement yeah. for so, people to, to just the, the sentence that the, the high-stakes test becomes the curriculum. Right, and it does. Because as soon as the schools know that what that's what they'll be accountable uh, to, uh, and they know approximately what's going to be on this test, because those items are usually published, uh, at least representative items, are, uh, sample items are published. Quite often the entire uh, sets of tests for prior years are released. Uh, and they know that their students are going to get uh, this kind of a test at the end of the year. Would anyone in, in, in a clear mind do anything but prepare students to be successful on that test? Of course not. I would have done the same thing if I were held accountable to that. So my curriculum becomes completely structured uh, and, and customized to the needs of that test. And that means that I'm going to figure out a way how to teach students particular things that are required to be successful uh, in solving those problems. So I'll be coming up with my own curriculum or ways of teaching mathematics that will be totally aligned uh, to the needs of this test. And the problem is that usually that doesn't end up to be a very good curriculum. Because uh, the normal way how the mankind developed ways of teaching mathematics is that the curriculum comes first. The way how students learn best are developed first and assessment follows. Assessment usually is aligned with the curriculum, with the way we teach and not vice versa. And as soon as the assessment becomes king and we're Kind of trying to cram and, and, and develop and create a curriculum that will fit into that test, uh, then quite often we're not coming up with anything that really will teach some substantive concepts uh, and ideas to a student. Is there any way, just thinking hypothetically about it, that you could have a test that was, uh, I mean, if, let's say, reasoning mind was the, the default curriculum, would there be a way to have a universal test that was actually useful? Yeah, I think so. For, for any curriculum, I think uh, uh, you could have a test uh, that will be uh, not biased, will be well aligned with this curriculum and will give you a good measurement of what students learned. Uh, so let, let me give you a way how I could possibly construct, a simplistic way how you could possibly construct such a test. Let's assume that I was teaching a course of mathematics at fifth or sixth grade level, uh, and uh, it was a coherent course. I used a lot of different specifically crafted problems for teaching students how to master particular skills. And I used, let's say, a thousand problems uh, throughout the year. Every student seen approximately a thousand problems that they had to solve independently. So uh, let me split this comp uh, a thousand problems into, into topics, like say fractions, decimals, whole numbers, particular operations, or particular topics of, of that great curriculum. And after that, I'll select from each of these categories representative problems, those that, in my view, really kind of uh, allow to see if students learn the particular concept. 
uh, and they'll represent the, the entire suite of the most important topics that the student was taught. So if my test will comprise, let's say, 30 problems, then uh, I'll have to select, I don't know, whatever, about 3% of all the problems that the student's seen, right? And I can further modify those problems to make sure that student didn't memorize them mindlessly, uh, kind of to changing, uh, by changing some context, replacing apples with oranges uh, in, in problem plots, or, or changing data sets, so they will not be exactly the same. I can manufacture a test that will be quite well aligned with what I taught. Uh, and uh, on that test, I'll be able to see how well the students are doing. Actually, I'll be able to include in this test even problems of variety difficulty levels because that's how good mathematics course is usually taught. So there will be uh, a good proportion of problems that will be testing students' knowledge at the basic level. Uh, maybe then the next portion, uh, let's say 25% of problems more difficult and maybe the remaining 25% uh, that will be most difficult. So I'll be able even to kind of get a good slice of, uh, of uh, how advanced my students are after administering this test. And it's impossible to prepare to this test, Alex. The only way to prepare to this test is to teach curriculum. Right? So that's so if, if teachers will know that that's what's going to happen, they'll be pretty much forced uh, uh, to, to, to optimize the chances of their students performing well on this test to just teach the curriculum, which is exactly what, what would be wonderful to, to achieve. So if with the current tests, and I, I'm not up on all the different kinds of tests, but I, I, I gather that they've become more centralized over the years. What are the typical problems in those, uh, probably as related to some of the, the issues you discussed earlier with, I forget the term for just learning things by rote, uh, but yeah, so what are, what are some of the, the problems of the current test that that then when people, quote, teach to the test or the, the test becomes the curriculum, make it a really bad curriculum? Well, the problem, the, the underlying problem in my view is just standardized nature of the test. That means that the items on the test uh, from one year to another will be quite similar, which means that, uh, that looking at the items, you could pretty much predict uh, or reverse engineer uh, how the items of, on the next year test will look like. And then, uh, instead of just teaching mathematical concepts to a student, you'll just show how to solve similar type of problems by analogy, without really understanding or teaching students uh, to understand what they're doing. Uh, also, most of those tests are multiple choice, right? So, and, uh, and that means that there's some techniques on how you could kind of guess uh, an answer by way of elimination or using some other uh, uh, test-taking strategies. So that, that's what unfortunately is quite often is happening. Uh, and, uh, and the good news is that uh, there's, there's, there's some light in the end of the tunnel. We, we're seeing some tests coming out that will be more probably designed along the ways that I described uh, and which will not be easy or even possible to teach to, and which will require students to provide open-ended answer to questions, which will not be that easy to kind of cheat or to use your guesswork to optimize your chances. And, uh, for example, common core standards uh, that uh, I would expect you've heard about, uh, which have been quite controversial, uh, and that led to the emergence of two consortia that are producing those tests, uh, at least I know that they're striving, they're trying to develop the tests or have developed the tests that, that have this objective in mind and that uh, they'll be not only adaptive, which is also a very good thing to the level of every student, but also will provide a, a variety of problems that, uh, that will not be teachable to and that will come hopefully correctly reflect students' knowledge of particular topics. So where is reasoning in mind in terms of its penetration in the world of education? Uh, we, we had 100,000 students right now uh, finishing, uh, finishing up this school year uh, in a little over uh, 500 schools. Uh, for the most part, we are in Texas, 
uh, about 80, 85%, I would say, of our students are in Texas. We also have a pretty significant presence in California, in West Virginia, just for historical reasons that just happened by word of mouth and by some of the generous donations that we received from, in particular, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that brought us to West Virginia. And it turned out that West Virginia showed a lot of interest in what we do. Uh, so uh, three years later, we happened to be in 20% of West Virginian schools, uh, which is pretty cool. And the interest is, is quite high. We are doubling our enrollment in West Virginia every year. So um, we are total in eight states. Uh, we have relatively minor presence uh, in some other states. Uh, but uh, we just started uh, building the mechanism, internal mechanism within our organization to, uh, to increase our enrollment. And, and here I'm only talking about what we initially referred to as uh, uh, internal challenges, because until, until recently, we've been more like a research and development lab. So we've been developing these advanced methods of mathematics teaching and been almost exclusively concerned with how the curriculum should look like, uh, what should be happening with the student when the student is taking this curriculum uh, at the computer, how artificial intelligence should, should guide uh, students' learning, and what kind of information should be provided to teachers so that teachers could effectively monitor students' progress and interfere uh, when needed and as needed. Uh, so our mission, I don't remember if I mentioned this to you, is uh, first-rate mathematics education for every child. So we focused in our initial 15 years of existence for the most part on, on the quality, on this first-rate mathematics education, and have not focused to, to the expected extent on the part that relates to every child. So it's now time for us to, uh, to, to get really serious about getting to more schools. And I think that the environment is favorable. So those challenges that I mentioned to you before doesn't mean that Reasoning Mind program cannot expand. Uh, so we could overcome those challenges. And uh, in particular, we're building right now uh, a professional sales force, which we didn't have before. We're hoping uh, in, uh, quite naively that if we come up with the good ways of teaching mathematics, uh, everyone will just come come and ask us for, for a favor and whether we could kind of share our wisdom with them and give them our system, uh, which certainly is quite naive. Uh, we know that we need to sell our ideas and our concept to schools, and we think this is a fair game, uh, and we are now building a system to allow us to do that, uh, and we have not done that before. So that's, uh, that's what the future is for us. That's what we're going to focus on uh, and have pretty ambitious plans about uh, about very rapidly growing our enrollment so that we could start benefiting uh, hundreds of thousands of students and possibly millions uh, in, in the next few years. So with 100,000, just to give people a sense, 100,000 out of how many potentials? Uh, well, uh, we currently serve uh, students in grades 2nd uh, uh, through 7th. We also continue expanding our curriculum and we'll be adding uh, uh, early learning system for pre-K, K, and grade one, uh, and we'll be adding the eighth grade curriculum sometime very soon. So within the next two years, uh, we'll have uh, a complete pre-K through grade eight coverage. So uh, if, uh, if an estimated number of students in the United States is about 50 million, um, and we take uh, a good count kind of two thirds more than that of those students, Right, so we're talking about I don't know somewhere between thirty to thirty-five million students that there is a potential market uh, for the product that that we'll have within the next couple of years. So the the opportunities for expansion are just enormous. So we just scratched the surface with one hundred thousand students. Yeah, you're still at a fraction of a percent, though. I mean, that's 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 encouraging. That given given that your focus has been on what I. I, I just differentiate between uh, quality scale and quantity scale uh, in my own work because I think a lot of what I try to do is uh, people often will try to quantity scale as in bring it to everyone before it's any good. Uh, so I like quality scaling. So it seems like if the focus has been quality scaling, you still have 100,000 students. That's, 
that's pretty good. I mean, I know it's a huge organization, relatively speaking, and lots of people put money into it. So I can imagine they want it to scale faster. But but it is encouraging that it has 100,000 as against, say, 100, uh, which would be which would be discouraging. Uh, so okay. let me ask this um, as we start to wrap up. And this is this is on the idea of sales. And and for those listening, part of part of my own part of my interest in this topic was just I'm interested in education and I'm interested in math. Uh, but part of it was I heard this idea, and when I hear a good idea that's and a thing that seems to work, my question is, well, why? What's preventing it from getting more uh, more adoption? And often my my tentative theory on that is usually people. It's not being uh, the idea of it isn't being sold well enough, it's not being marketed enough, it's not in the media enough. Uh, so uh, I told one of the, actually two of the, the main uh, backers of it that I would study it and I would, if it was good, I would, I would promote it. So this is a first step uh, toward that. Uh, so, but I'll ask Alex, if you're, if you're talking to a parent, like let's, let's say you have a group of parents and they have the decision, yay or nay, to put in reasoning mind and you're at the PTA meeting or the school board or however it works and you're on the stage, you know, what what in a minute or two is, is your pitch to them about what this having this versus not will do to their kids' lives? Well I would say this that research is absolutely clear about what makes a difference in high quality mathematics education. And this is the quality of the curriculum and the teacher's ability to teach this curriculum well. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, we're not paying enough attention um, in our country to, to the importance of the curriculum, uh, but the research evidence is there. Uh, of all the factors like uh, teacher pay for performance, state standards, charters, if you look at research, you'll see that in mathematics education in particular, uh, high quality curriculum provides you better mathematics outcomes by 0.3 standard deviations on average, which is, which is pretty significant. Uh, uh, if in education research, anything that's more than 0.2 standard deviations considered to be a medium effect size, uh, 0.6 is large effect size. Uh, so 0.3 is extremely vulnerable. Uh, and I think that if we could do it from one year to another, uh, uh, do better by 0.3 standard deviations, this will bring us on par with, uh, and actually will probably overpass uh, some of the most advanced nations uh, in their mathematics education. So I would say that curriculum uh, quality is immensely important. It's the most important thing that you need to worry about when thinking about mathematics education of your child. And that's what Reasoning Mind program is offering. Our system is built on a curriculum uh, that has a proven record of success uh, with uh, literally billions of students. Uh, so it's not the computer part uh, that was tested with billions of students. No, we, we've done only 100,000 students. But the curriculum itself that was paper and pencil curriculum that we put in the foundation of our system uh, was developed and proven effective with many, many generations of students in many different countries. And that's why if you are a parent thinking about giving a first-rate mathematics education to your child, uh, you should pay attention to this curriculum because that's something that's proven to work with huge number of students under different circumstances. It's something that has been perfected and approved over many, many years by generations of mathematicians, educators, teachers, cognitive psychologists, and that's what we're offering. So that would be my pitch uh, to, to parents and my pitch to teachers as well. On top of that, I would also say that, of course, to learn how to be effective with this curriculum, uh, uh, there's some additional knowledge that needs to be acquired. And we will need to help teachers understand the depth of this curriculum, uh, how to better present it to students. Uh, and, uh, and for that, we offer at Reasoning Mind, uh, our implementation department that we discussed uh, uh, briefly, I think, at the end of the previous segment. Uh, and the implementation department uh, has exact that charge to make sure the teachers understand the curriculum, the teachers are properly supported in their learning on how to 
effectively teach this curriculum uh, and we're offering the entire package to our schools uh, and parents. Good curriculum with the ways how teachers could learn how to make this curriculum effective in the classroom. To go one step bigger in, in our picture, let's say starting now, every kid in, in second or eighth grade gets reasoning mind for the next 10 years. What is the, what is, how does America look different a generation or two from now? Um. Well, first of all, let me start with, uh, with a little anecdote referring to, to the dream that, that my son George had, and he's my partner in this project, uh, mathematician by education, but this program, as, as I told before, was, uh, came into being because of him. So he, a few years ago, he said he cannot wait until, uh, until large number of students in this country um, in our country, we'll, we'll go through a few years of reasoning mind and we'll apply to college. And he said, uh, I'll have a lot of fun seeing how colleges like Harvard will be making their kind of admittance decisions. They'll be blown away. They will not know how to choose. Uh, so that, that was kind of the dream that, that in some ways is guiding us uh, uh, as of today. Uh, but, uh, but, but seriously, I think that that might this level of mathematics education might transform uh, our society uh, in, in very uh, prominent ways. Uh, in particular, I think that we will have generations of, uh, uh, of professionals that will be much better prepared to deal with the complexities of jobs that will be available uh, in future generations. Because everything that can be automated will be automated uh, and pretty soon. So the only jobs that will be available moving on will be those that cannot be easily automated. And for the most part, those are the jobs that require uh, highly developed intellects, creativity, ability to, uh, to reason and do things that, that computers are not nearly as good at uh, as, as humans. So uh, I think we'll see the country uh, that will advance dramatically uh, in innovation, technology, in everything that we want uh, to do and everything we aspire to do uh, because we'll be able to take everything that we do much further with a very solid education and mathematics that will shape our minds to, to be much more effective, productive uh, in, uh, in, the, in the society uh, of, of the future. And I think we'll be enormously competitive then, uh, much more competitive than, than today uh, with other countries. Uh, I think that mathematics education can do that. It's not, it will not be the only thing that will get us there, but I think that will be a very good foundation uh, that will have the effects spilled over to learning and abilities, acquiring abilities in many other fields and subjects so that uh, the that our people of the future will be able to, to do a much better job with everything they choose to do. One thing, just given my own field and disposition that I'd be interested in seeing, is what it does to the humanities and uh, political cultural discourse. Uh, because I find when discussing ideas with people, my favorite people to discuss ideas with are often engineers or people who have a good mathematical background. And I think there's, I don't think that's an accident. And I think in general, uh, people with good mathematical backgrounds have uh, more intellectual self-confidence, at least more earned uh, self-confidence, and are easier to reason with. Now, granted, there are many people who are brilliant at math who have done horrible things. So there's, there's no, uh, there's gonna be no, you know, it's not a savior, but it would be fun just speaking as, as someone who disseminates ideas, it would be fun to speak to an audience where everyone has that context. And, and maybe the closest I've come is when I love speaking to geologists about uh, energy and environmental issues, because geologists have the biggest context with regard to the history of the planet. 
so they tend to just have they tend to have a lot of context, which makes it it them take a very different view uh, on things than people than, than people whose context is twenty years. And oh my gosh, it's different than it was twenty years ago. The world must be ending. Uh, so I I really look forward to uh, you know to a world with better things. And I think this is this is the kind of thing that is it is possible. It is possible to solve problems. And I think this is uh, you know I don't have exhaustive knowledge of this, but it's 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 by far the best thing I've seen so far in terms of a scalable you know an attempt at a scalable solution. So uh, I hope our listeners. Appreciate it. And Alex, what can, uh, what are ways people can uh, support Reasoning Mind, whether I guess financially or spreading the word or, or whatever? Well, uh, if anyone is interested in helping us, just give us a call. So there are many ways uh, uh, how we could be helped uh, because the problem is, is pretty huge. It will amount to nothing else but changing perceptions of our society about as we discussed today about mathematics education and we need all the help we could get uh, so uh, yeah funding is one thing uh, but just disseminating those ideas uh, if uh, if uh, some of your viewers and listeners uh, they, they share the, the basics the philosophy of what we discussed today uh, would greatly appreciate uh, giving us a call uh, and and discussing with us how they could help us disseminate those ideas because uh, doing public awareness on on our work is immensely important uh, and and hopefully by the way we're going to get some help I have not shared this with you yet Alex but we've got a very recent good news uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, we won a national competition that was run by Deloitte uh, for an innovative program uh, in in education. Uh, and uh, the significance of this prize is that Deloitte is, interest, is interested in, in having uh, their, their employees, their staff, uh, help companies that have promise uh, in, in affecting major change, like uh, Reasoning Mind, uh, help them scale. Uh, so we're very excited about, uh, about getting some help from Deloitte in bringing our program to a whole lot more uh, schools and parents across the country because Deloitte being, being a global organization has presence almost uh, in every geography uh, and metropolitan area um, uh, in, in the United States. And if we could get uh, Deloitte people and your listeners excited about, uh, about what we do, uh, we'll have uh, a lot of people really telling the Reasoning Mind story and, uh, and spreading the word about what we're up to and preparing schools, communities, uh, others to to talking with reasoning mind and hopefully uh, trying out what we're offering. Sounds great. Now you mentioned calling you. Is there is there a number or is a website or what's the best way to get in contact? Yeah, the best way probably is going on our website uh, and there are all kind of contacts on our website, which is uh, www.reasoningmind.org.org. Once again, www.reasoningmind.org. Not, not reasoning minds, plural, reasoning mind, singular, just so everyone... Exactly everyone, right. Everyone gets it. Um, well, Alex, it was really, really fun to talk to you these two interviews. I, I appreciate the time. I, I'm really looking forward to our listener uh, response. So I want to thank you for, for being on here, but also just for for doing something good in the world. I think, Alex, it's, it's a pleasure talking with you, uh, and I'm glad to hear that that was of interest to you and hopefully will be of interest to your audience. Thanks again to Alex Hachatrian for doing two full hours of Power Hour. I found it really enjoyable. I hope you found it really enjoyable. Uh, as always, eager for your questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can send them to alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, Covered pretty much everything I had to say in, in the interviews, uh, but again, I'm particularly interested in what the audience has to say, particularly if, if you have any background or in education or in mathematics or science and technology or whatever, you know, check out, check out their website. Uh, see what you think. It's not not as much, in, I don't know nearly as much about this area as I do about uh, energy, but it's, it's definitely a big interest of mine and, and 
I think education is something all of us uh, should be should be passionate about. Uh, again, as I like to say in every Power Hour, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at industrialprogress.com. You can just enter in your email address. That, that will give you the most up-to-date information, as well as looking for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to add me on LinkedIn, go ahead. I've never really found too much value from that, but maybe, maybe I will uh, in, in the future. Besides that, uh, I just want to say that uh, I hope we do more power hours soon. I'm, I have an aspiration of doing some on policy for the 2016 election season and, and getting that started as soon as possible so we can create, so create some, some new ideas, some, I think, positive policy ideas to add to the debate. Uh, so that's, that's a project I'm working on. but. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to do the power hours every week or even sometimes every month, uh, but uh, definitely keep the feedback coming. I, I, I enjoy hearing from everyone who enjoys power hour, and uh, I, some of you have listened to all, I think, 80-plus episodes, uh, but if you haven't, go, go listen to those until we finally get our act together and, and get back to being uh, a weekly show. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.